On the Empire Podcast this week, we have chats with ace documentarian Alex Gibney, director of the Armstrong Lie, and Peter Berg, bouncing back from the miss of Battleship to hit it big with Lone Survivor. We also cast our eyes over those movies, plus I, Frankenstein, in the movie podcast that's hopelessly addicted to the Book of Mormon soundtrack. Hello, my name is Potter Hewitt, and I would like to share with you the most amazing pod... Brought to you in association with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code EMPIRE9. That offer code again, EMPIRE9. Did you like the bit where I just You riffed? should be on I stage. Just riffed, man. I was feeling it. Feeling it. This week, uh, I'm joined by three simply swell people. I like to call my close personal workmates. First up is a lady so geeky, she collected all 25 of our special edition Supernatural covers. Hang on, we didn't have 25 Supernatural covers. It's <laughs> Helen O'Hara. She's been making Supernatural covers again uh, and put them on sale in news agents. Basically, it's, it's 25 pictures of Dean in various different colours of plaid shirt. Not the other one? No. Whose name escapes me? Sam. That's him. Okay. Uh, then we have the finest cinematic siblings this side of Auguste and Louis Lumiere. Okay, since Joel and Ethan Cohen. Okay, since Colin and Greg Strauss. It's our art house guru, Phil Dissemlian. Yes. And our raptor paddock guru, Nick Dissemlian. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Nick, you, you also saw Book of Mormon last week, didn't you? I did. I did. I'm obsessed with it. It's very good. I've got the soundtrack on a loop. I did a one man show in the Piccadilly line today mm-hmm. of the Book of Mormon. What do you said. believe, Chris? Um, I. I I can't get into it. We don't have the time. We don't have the time. All right, let's get on with it. Here are your questions uh, that you've been sent in all week on Twitter at Medifets. And your relation to Boba, I wonder, wants to know Have you ever interviewed your movie crush and what was the result? Usually, when I interview people that I've had a crush on, I stop having a crush on them because I start seeing them as actual people. And usually, let's be honest, you have a crush on the character, not the person. So it's usually fine. I did have a little bit of confusion when I interviewed uh, Hugh Jackman dressed as Wolverine. He was dressed as Wolverine, not me, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, but he was wearing, you know, the, the the vest and the the dog tags and had the hair. So that was that was that was a good day. Oh wow! Yeah. Did you get digits? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> By the end. What like is? Oh Hugh, if you, uh, yeah, I might have some follow up questions to you. If you need to, you know, I don't know, answer them, just go get in touch with me on oh etc etc etc. Yeah. No, yeah. I didn't do that. No? No. Okay. Phil? Yes. Movie crush? Yes. Who is it? Oh, my movie crush, well, going back to when I was like a young whippersnapper t- type character. You're leading up to Helen Mirren, aren't you? I was going to go. I was telling you about the race. My, well, I can bring Nick in on this one. My movie crush as a kid when I watched Weird Science, Kelly DeBrock. I haven't interviewed her, but I know for a fact that someone sitting next to me has her phone number. Yeah, I haven't interviewed her either. But you've so. not been one of her trying. It's a, it's a long story. It's a good story. Um, it's one of my favourite stories. Yeah, I never check my voicemail on my phone. Uh, so if you're listening to this and you want to call, leave a message, don't bother. Because um, <laughs> I never get around to it. You have to put a code in and stuff. It's very complicated. Yeah, it's boring. And anyway, I put in an interview request. I emailed it to Kelly LeBrock. What I didn't realise was she had phoned me directly. So when I finally got round to clearing out my voicemail, I had a series of uh, voice messages from Kelly LeBrock kind of getting increasingly frustrated that I wasn't calling her back <laughs> giving me all her numbers and stuff yeah it's really embarrassing sorry Kelly did anyone else leave messages that you didn't get back to there was one from Timothy Dalton no way there was really yeah Amazing. but I did get back to him didn't wow. you get one from Julian Glover Gosh, or was that me no because I checked my voicemail once and I had a message from Judd Apatow <laughs> like this is months after he left it 
a message. Oh. And, and, yeah, we should probably check our voicemail, shouldn't we? These are actually yeah, quite good I people. Yeah, I don't, I don't like to do it, though. I, don't, I can never remember the code. and mm, It's really complicated. Yeah. My, my voicemail message literally does say, please don't leave me a voicemail, please email me. So oh, really? That's my get out of jail. See, I don't even know how to set my voicemail. So, so there you go. Uh, I have interviewed several movie crushes. Uh, Hugh Jackman, obviously. I guess the worst one for me was Naomi Harris. Oh, years yeah. ago uh, where I really really uh, really fancied her for uh, what was it called After the Sunset that Brett Ratner film and I, I wangled a one on one interview and just flirted really badly with her <laughs> I mean really really badly I think I think I was not with my wife at the time you mean bad think, flirting let's go with that I think that's okay let's I think that's that. okay yeah it was yeah. certainly prior to your marriage it was, that, that is, it was certainly yeah. prior to my marriage yeah yeah, yeah. and oh my god it was, was it awful. was it kind of like the scenes of brick flirting in Anchorman 2 it was uh, yeah there's a party in my pants and you're invited it was it was shocking yeah. shocking uh, romantic bands that I just you know well, small like, talk with movie stars can be awkward at the best of times but I think when there's someone extremely hot yeah. the opposite so yeah, it's all the same sex. Well, we ended um, up talking about her fridge. Right. Th- yeah. That was not a sexy time. I interviewed Scarlett Johansson recently, and uh, I had seen her play a part in View from the Bridge, Arthur Miller's play, the year before, and I had played a part in the school production of the same play. So I thought, wow. I thought she'd be really interested to know that. <laughs> um, yeah, she just looked a bit sorry for me. I saw it. It was definitive. It was. <laughs> I had to lift a chair with one hand. If your Hanson's version was half as powerful as yours. It was powerful. Did you play the same character? Who were you playing? No, no, no. <laughs> I was Eddie Carboni. Ah. So she would have played my daughter had we been in the same one. Oh, would, my God. He was the Brando. Would have the been Brando weird. type. That was probably just freaked her out. You probably said, you know, you would have been my daughter. I did say, I am your father. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, yeah, that didn't go down well. In fact, you guys... I never let anyone transcribe my interviews. And I was not happy because the transcript was basically... It would go... Naomi Harris would give an answer and then it would go he would he would he would insert stage directions like Chris shamelessly flirts here but badly <laughs> he laughs sycophantically here <laughs> yeah he's dead now uh, okay moving on uh, at Rusty Bamford asks which currently unheralded actor has the potential to do a McConaughey and go from rom-com plum to Oscar Darling is that a good thing to be a rom-com plum I don't think it is a good thing to be what a rom-com what is a rom-com plum? plum is that like um, a damson or it's it's um it's um, it's a plum, right? In a, in a rom com. In a rom com. Okay, so it's like when they go browsing those farmers markets. There'd be one there. Yes. I don't know. I think um, I think Channing Tatum is it, a few years ago would have been an outrageous thing to suggest in this category. I think now that's fairly obvious that he seems to be developing a very respectable career and could one day go in that direction. I mean, my goodness, if Matthew McConaughey can, then there's absolutely no reason that Magic Mike can't follow. Um, but also I'd actually put a word in for Zac Efron, who I've always thought has actual kind of movie star quality and some actual talent. And I think, you know, in a few years, a few more roles, he's willing to take risks. We saw him in The Paperboy. You know, he could be in that sort of category. Do you think so? I, I think so. I I'm not, not yet. I'm not calling it. Yeah. I mean, apart from anything else, actors don't tend to win Academy Awards until they're in their 40s, mm-hmm. generally speaking, never in their 20s. So he's got at least 10 years before it's even, you know, looking like a possibility. But I don't, I don't see why it couldn't happen. I mean, as a heartthrob, I'm trying to think back to, what you know, Leonardo DiCaprio's early performances and <laughs> how much sort of acting chops he showed. But I think he showed probably a bit more than Zac Efron showed back in the, in the, in the sort of late teen Gilbert Great time. Um, Efron, Maybe, yeah. I don't know, he needs to shed a bit of that kind of that sort of grinning I'm going to make a prediction I don't know I think he could do it Ashton Kutcher <laughs> no I'm lying I don't believe that you, you live on no, the edge no, there no. wow who can forget his Steve Jobs 
I haven't seen it yet. Neither have I. Yeah, I- I who can forget it. the cover of his Steve Jobs? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Um, Ryan Reynolds is, is someone who's striving, isn't he, furiously to be recognised as a as a serious actor. Yeah, uh, or indeed as a movie star. Bless yeah. Him. Oh, poor Ryan Reynolds. And Aaron Eckhart is someone who's striving in completely opposite direction. You think? Yeah, a little bit. But we'll more on that later. Oh yes. And I, maybe Rachel McAdams. I'm going to put a word in for Rachel McAdams. Is she rom commy? She kind of is. She made something called The Vow last year, which I yeah. haven't seen, but it looks it's quite good actually. Right. With Channing Tatum. And about time. And about time. Yeah, yeah. yeah she so. does a lot of rom coms. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. She's great, and she is amazing. She is amazing. So, who knows? <laughs> Watch these places. We really stuck our neck out with those productions, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> like, like no, no Justin well, Bieber, no, nothing think like that. Nick, Nick stuck <laughs> his neck out. The rest of us didn't. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Oh, Keep God. your eyes on a, a young up and comer called Woody Allen. He's made some promising rom coms. <laughs> I, I see a lot in that man's future. Uh, at Peter Quell one. At Asks, I keep seeing the posters for I Frankenstein on the tube. What are the worst movie taglines you've ever come across? Now, a reminder here the tagline for I Frankenstein is 200 years later, he's still alive. Mm. Now, imagine the uh, the rejected taglines. <laughs> if that's the one that made it through. What I'm pretty sure hell? that was the first one they, they, <laughs> yeah, they came like, up yeah, should we, should we, yeah, that's done. Let's not go for lunch, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I have the correct answer to this, but first. You cheated. Okay. I went on Twitter. You went on Twitter. I solicited <laughs> some some things, and I, I've got some crackers. Um, let's do a quiz thing because Ali's not here. Okay, Ooh. Ooh. so I will right. say the tagline, the terrible tagline. You have to Ooh. tell me what the film is. Okay. Great things come in bears. <laughs> oh, was that Yogi Bear? And it was it was combined with that awful and really inappropriate poster of Yogi standing. I behind. don't know what you mean. It's very. Uh, You're right. The only thing more terrifying than the last twelve minutes of this film are the first ninety-two. <laughs> That's the Dario Argento one. Yes. Uh, is it Suspiria? It is Suspiria. Oh, wow. Suspiria. How did you know that? So that's basically telling you to I leave. Came across it recently. After ninety-two minutes. <laughs> it's, it's like, it goes like, downhill in the last yeah, 12 like, yeah. the last 12 minutes of this movie is shit <laughs> I wouldn't bother alright for a sex addict falling in love it's hard oh come on <laughs> oh my word well, this is a recent film is that, so not last choke. 12 months it's not a shame it's the one is it the one with Mark Ruffalo and, and Gwyn yes. Paltrow I don't know the name of that thanks for Thank sharing you. yeah uh, that's the name of the film that's a terrible terrible tagline that's wow. pretty bad this is a favourite of mine Science created him. Now Chuck Norris must destroy him. <laughs> yes, I've got that run down as well. That is that silent rage. rage. Thanks to Chris Gel- Gildard for that one. Uh, the writer of the forthcoming Minions movie, Brian Lynch, contributed this one. It's a film I've not heard of, but it's uh, from the hotspot. And the tagline is: "Safe is never sex. It's dangerous," which just doesn't make any it doesn't sense. Doesn't make any sense. Was that written by someone who speaks English? Uh, apparently, yeah. Chuck I'll- Norris, I think, wrote that one. One more from Twitter. Ex-cop, ex-CIA, explosive. <laughs> is this another Chuck Norris? That It might have Chuck Norris in it. It's called Malone. I have no idea what it is. Wow. And, That's quite and, good, And though. the correct answer, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Yeah. Everything interesting begins in the mind. That's Basic Instinct 2. Yeah. That is Basic Instinct 2. That is a good one. And, and nothing interesting begins in Basic Instinct 2. That is not the correct answer. The correct answer to the worst movie tagline of all time on every level is from Blame It on Rio... She's the hottest thing on the beach. She's also his best friend's daughter. <laughs> oh, that is bad. It's just terrible. See, Complicated. All I had was Jaws, uh, Jaws the Revenge, which goes with this time it's personal. Yes. It's, like, it's a shark. Sharkinal. Yes. It's, it's Sharkinal. Yes. So that, that was my word. <laughs> yeah. Sharkin 3. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, sharks have, uh, you know, they've been around for millions of years. Who's to say they don't keep detailed notes 
of their victims and their, their, their relatives' victims. And victims and the relatives who've been killed by their victims. Yeah, no, I don't think they and do. Then, hmm. There's also actually a, a word for a sisterhood of the travelling pants. Which the goes, title alone is Well, is it's bad. pretty bad, but the tagline is laugh, cry, share the pants. Hmm. <laughs> That's Chris. bad advice. Hello. Can sex friends stay best friends? Phil, you've asked me this <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> Let's talk later. We, we've agreed never to bring our personal life into the pod. <laughs> what is that from? And no strings attached. That's from no strings Recently attached. Recently and terribly. Say it again. Can sex friends, which is not in any way a phrase people use, stay best friends? Is that the one that started life as fuck buddies? That one? Because there, yes. there were two. Okay. Better, there yeah. were two competing yeah. projects at one point. Whoever created that tagline, Chuck Norris must destroy it. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a good tagline. Interesting. Thanks again for your questions. If you want to get in touch with us on the podcast, we're on Twitter at Empire Magazine. Uh, use the hashtag Empire Podcast, lest we don't see your tweet. Uh, we're on Facebook as Empire Magazine. And we are on the email uh, podcast at empireonline.com. Okay, okay. Time now for our first guest. Alex Gibney is one of the finest documentary makers around. He returns this week with a thought-provoking The Armstrong Lie, which documents the journey of Lance Armstrong from all-American hero to father of fibs and retrospective ruiner of dodgeball. Interestingly, the documentary started out as a pro-Armstrong piece before the revelations emerged, forcing Gibney to change tack. He came in recently to have a fascinating conversation with Phil. I hope you started off by asking him, can sex friends ever be best friends? <laughs> it's funny I didn't. <laughs> I wish I had. All right, enjoy. Do you think it's changed you as a filmmaker? being exposed to Lance Armstrong and going through this unusual process? Because this is effectively two movies, really, isn't it? You yeah, well, it put me through the ringer. It was five years in the making. So I suppose in that sense, it <laughs> I lost a, f- a few more hairs on my head. But it, what was interesting, in a way, was in doing the second film, which really was using the entrails of the first, you know, I actually had to put myself in the story because I'd seen a lot along the way, not always with the cameras rolling. And in order to be able to make sense of it all and also to, I think, make sense of this experience, which part of it is being the disappointed fan, I had to put myself in that role. And so that's what I did. I put myself much more at the center of this film than I had done in other films before. I had narrated other films, but I hadn't been really a character. Yeah, it's interesting. You are very much one of the key kind of dramatic persona, I guess, in this whole story. As you tackle, and there's a part of the film where you start to analyse whether you've got, you know, too close to the sun, as it were, in terms of your relationship with Armstrong. Well, I was inside the bubble. I mean, when I was following him around in 2009, I was very much on the inside. So being inside that part of the bubble was, was a really interesting experience. And it was also hard for me in a way because it was fantastic access it was great you know having that much contact and also being a part of that sort of celebrity life from the inside but made it hard for me to get in touch with his critics because they all assumed because I was physically in that position that I had been kind of bought off that I was part of a kind of a promo job this was I mean just to put into context for the listeners you set out to make a film about the 2009 Lance Armstrong comeback he'd been retired for a few years and he decided for whatever reasons reasons that you explore in the film to have another crack at the Tour de France and to prove that he could do it clean and that film was going to be called I believe The Road Back I wondered if at that point in his life and in all the noise around Lance Armstrong, he wasn't necessarily the kind of guy you'd associate with a kind of heroic comeback story. He'd been kind of outed, if nothing else, as a bit of a bully. Right. Well, he had been known as a bully, but that had a kind of double-edged sword. I mean, 
he had been known as a bully to some extent, but I think a lot of that was put to the side because he had this kind of larger-than-life persona, and after all, he was successful. It's amazing the kind of slack we give people if they're successful. He'd won the Tour de France seven times. Well, that in and of itself would have been a spectacular feat, but even better, he had he was the custodian of this more amazing story, which was that he was literally on the edge of death, and somehow he managed to come back from his bout with cancer where he had lesions on his brain. You know, one testicle was removed. And he comes back from that. And not only was he able to ride again, but he was able to do things that he was never able to do before cancer. Even though he had a reputation as a bit of a bully, in the main, people put that aside and said, well, that's okay. He's a winner. And also, he raises lots of money for cancer. He's uh, He represents hope to millions of people, cancer survivors in particular. There were, you know, rumors about him having doped and, frankly, quite a bit of evidence. But everyone put it to the side to bask in the glow of this kind of mythic character. Yeah, but there were journalists like David Walsh, who's a, who was the kind of lone, one of the lone voices, not the only one, crying mm-hmm. in the wilderness saying, you know, Lance this, that. And he had been picked on. And, and you see in the film that the tractor beam of Lance Armstrong's personality, yes, singling these people out of press conferences and just trying to crush them, crush them, um, absolutely. But at the same time, he kind of he portrays himself as a victim and and the dominant one all at the same time. There's so many contradictions in Lance Armstrong. Do you right. think you got to the bottom of all of those? I think we did. I mean, I think that's the interesting. You know, I've done a number of films about powerful men and abuses of power. It's interesting. You you mentioned the word victim. It's interesting to me how many powerful people often imagine themselves to be victims at the same time. It's kind of incomprehensible looked at from afar, but I think they feel somehow aggrieved. Everybody somehow has this sense of righteousness about what it is they do, and when they're questioned, they they turn into the aggrieved victim. This film is called The Armstrong Lie, and one of the ways he protected his lie was by attacking truth-tellers or attacking critics. I mean, look, he did have cancer and he did raise hundreds of millions of dollars for cancer. But I think he also used cancer not only as a shield, but as a club, you know, to beat back people who were trying to tell the truth. Yeah, that's cynical, you would say. Has he seen the film? The last time I had contact with him was when I told him that we were going to call the film The Armstrong Lie. I don't think he was wild about it, but he did accept it. We gave him an opportunity to see the film. So far, he hasn't taken it. He sent his representatives to see it. I haven't heard the final reaction, but he's. We know that he's watching the podcasts or the press conferences and the trailers. So, so no Lance Armstrong commentary on the DVD. You don't think at this point? <laughs> we'll see. I'll offer him the opportunity. He's such an interesting man in so many ways, and you can obviously, if you're looking to draw a thread in your filmography between the sort of people that you've been interested in, they are people that are potentially or actually great who are brought down by a certain you know flaw. Oh. But I wonder if there was something else in it you know whether there's something in you that is drawn to them for more romantic reasons or, or or because there's an intrinsic sadness in seeing these people that could have done great things Elliot Spitzer or you know Enron could have been a force for good for instance well I mean in, in this case you know I was actually hoping for the first film that it would be a little bit different that yes I knew that there was a dark side to Lance Armstrong's personality you know I was interested in his will you know the will to win the will to survive That I was very interested in. And even if it had a kind of dark, there will be blood quality to it, you know, I was still interested in that. And also in terms of athletics, whether you need that kind of dark will to be able to win at the highest level. At the same time, you know, 
seeing that pursuit of transcending physical limits seemed really engaging to me. So I wasn't looking for the fall. Mm. on this one but it came nevertheless it was going to be breaking away and it sort of became breaking back <laughs> <laughs> that's good i'll use that line. <laughs> you're a very keen tennis player i know in your spare time are there any tennis players that you think would be great fodder for documentaries there are good ones you know the funny thing is that i always thought that agassi's book was the best book on yeah. tennis and i i'd always thought he would you know he's he's kind of put aside people requesting i probably keep after it his is the most interesting story to me at least so far because he really hated what his father put him through as a young kid even when i interviewed him once briefly for some doc i was doing about pete sampras you know he mentioned right away how much he he felt his childhood had been robbed from him so I've, i found that very interesting and then he finds redemption at the end as a family man with steffi graf who i think went through went through something similar so he got to the top but he always kind of resented it at the same time and was able to reflect on it. I thought that would be a pretty good story. Yeah, yeah. Right. Lance also had problems, you know, you know, anger from his absent dad. Right. That drives him, and he seems like an angry person. He's also an incredibly accomplished liar to the point where I wondered if you believe that he actually thinks he is lying when he says these things. I think sometimes he doesn't. I think sometimes he believes there's a part of him that's like picking the wings off a fly, that he enjoys it. Is he a sociopath, do you think? I'm uncomfortable with that word because I'm not sure exactly what it means, but I think that he felt he had license to do what he did, and there was a skill that he developed, which is to tell this spectacular lie in public and to look people in the eye and make them believe what he was saying. But I think for every good liar, or uh, let's put an even positive spin on it, a good storyteller, and he was the custodian of his own myth, you have to believe it in some fundamental way. And I think he believed also, I think as a young man, you know, he grew up poor. His dad had left him. There was this idea that, look, I got two choices. I can be a winner or I can be a loser. And I'm going to be a winner, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. And it doesn't really matter. You know, you can be as nice as you want or as moral as you want. And if you lose, nobody gives a shit. Mm-hmm. But if you win, they do care. I think that's how he reckoned with the world. It was a very binary thing. And that gave him the fuel to say, look, nobody's looking out for me. I'm looking out for myself. Over time, then, it almost developed a kind of righteousness, particularly when it was involved with the cancer, so that he could lie to people And he could stand up at the, what was that magnificent speech he gives in 2005 on the podium the last time he won the Tour de France. He says, I'm sorry for you who don't believe in miracles. I'm sorry for you who don't dream big. It's so pious. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. But yeah, I mean, if if you were to call you up and say, Alex, you know, I didn't particularly love your film title, but, you know, I've watched it 10 years on. You're going to make another film with me. What do you, what sort of movie, what sort of story do you think that's going to be? I don't know. I'm always interested in reinvention. People are trying to figure out, you know, what they're going to do with the next act. That whole thing, line from Fitzgerald, there are no second acts in American life, is maybe the most idiotic thing that he ever said. And I like him, but American life is full of nothing but reinvention. So that would be interesting to me. I think it would be particularly interesting if he ever came to a place of reflection. A lot of the people I do films about, Spitzer would be one. He famously said to me, I don't do introspection. Uh, Assange is another, and and Lance, you know, most of these guys don't do introspection. But if they ever did, that would be fascinating. This is not your only film, as we've touched on, that you've released this year. You're a busy man. 
the the WikiLeaks, We Still Secrets WikiLeaks came out earlier in the year, and I wondered. I mean, sub- subsequent to that, the Fifth Estate has been released. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? I have. And what were your thoughts? You know, I was interested in the film. I thought Cumberbatch actually gave a great performance. I, just, I thought he sort of nailed one aspect of Julian's character, the kind of imperious bloviator. I wasn't sure that they actually got that pre-fame character quite right, because he could be quite charming early on before the fame kind of consumed him. But um, but I thought it was an interesting film. My reaction, of course, is colored by being a documentarian. I thought Cumberbatch did a great job of playing Assange, but I think nobody plays Assange quite like Julian. <laughs> no, no, right. Did, um, did you have any contact with Benedict? I wondered if he'd if he sort of reached out to you too. No, he didn't. You know, I actually had some contact with Ben Foster, who's about to play Lance Armstrong. Did you? Really? Yeah, he saw the film in Toronto. What was he interested in in particular? I think he was interested in the different sides of Lance. He didn't want to play him as a kind of cartoon baddie, you know, even if he was playing Dracula to to, to Van Helsing. Do you think that the fact that Lance Armstrong isn't, he's not acting, like some people lie and they know they're lying, but this is more, you know, ingrained in him, in his psyche almost. Do you think that makes it more of a challenge for Ben Foster to capture him on camera, do you think? I do, I do, because you don't, I think you don't want to play him as a kind of snidely, whiplash, you know, mustache-twirling villain. Uh, I think uh, the, the challenge for Ben will be to play Armstrong with his arrogance, but also with his charm. I wondered, because I know that you like to watch... You know, it's a golden age for TV, as mm. everyone says, and I know you're a fan of Game of Thrones. Yes. and I just also, had my picture taken in the Iron Throne the other day. Did you? Yeah, I was in Belfast. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Who will sit on the Iron Throne? That was Gibney. Alex Gibney will. <laughs> right. Behind the scenes in <laughs> Westeros, bringing corruption to, to heel. Um, and uh, Homeland, and I wonder, do you think it's jumped the shark? Because the first season... You, awesome. I mean, you have a, first yeah, season was awesome. You have, I have an interesting to conf- perspective because I, you you've kind of been in some of those rooms. I think I have been in some of those rooms. I you know I have to confess that I haven't. I finished the first season. I saw episode one of the second season, and since then, I haven't caught up. So so I, I can't render an opinion. You know, I started. I got into House of Cards big time, which I did sort of binge watch. That seems to be the new thing, which I I quite like. You know, you can sit down. And for three hours, four hours sometimes, I, I find myself at three o'clock in the morning watching, you know, House of Cards. I got to go see one more episode to see if they're really going to get away with killing this guy. Is that a spoiler, Alex? No, no. People, <laughs> people must have seen the first season. If they haven't, somebody uh, died. <laughs> I didn't say who. So it is kind of like there are similarities with Client with Client Nine and Elliot Spitzer in there, aren't there? I mean, mm, there are. Know, they've definitely. done a good job of capturing the the seedier side of. Of, of power. And are you a Breaking Bad fan as well? I am. I, do, do you think there's a documentary to be made in the, the whole sort of meth trade in America? There was. There were a few done, but I don't think they kind of captured the mixture of the darkness of the meth trade with the kind of <laughs> aspirations to <laughs> do the right thing by your family. The good family man trying to... Right. The American dream. Yeah, the American dream. <laughs> meth labs. <laughs> um, I've got to wrap up shortly, but lastly, um, you, I want to take you back to your Oscar win for Taxi to the Dark Side, and you, you made a speech at the Oscars, and you said that your wife was hoping that one day you were going to make a rom-com. When is that going to happen? Good question. You know, I'm always afraid that if I started to make a rom-com that everybody would die. Um, so I've been holding off. It would be fun to do. I'm not sure I could ever do a rom-com, but maybe a dark comedy might be fun. would like to see that very much. Alex Gibney, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure. 
Lovely, lovely Alex Gibney there. Uh, okay, time now for the movie news part of the pod, in which we discuss... Um, hang on. Oh, yeah, movie news. Helen, what you got? Um, I have two uh, Marvel newses this week. Uh, apart from... We're going to get some more Marvel stuff in a minute, I think, but uh, I have Marvel threequel news. Ooh. Both Thor and Captain America moved closer to their third parts this week. So Captain America, the news just came today as we record this, that Craig Kyle, who's a long-term Marvel producer, um, and Christopher Yost, who wrote the last script, are going to be teaming up for the Thor 3 script, whatever that ends up being called. Um, So that has writers set, ready to go, and I guess starting work for Phase 3. Captain America also has uh, the return of this film's directors, Anthony and Joe Russo, uh, who are going to be returning for number three. So they, they're only the third Marvel directors to do so. Phase threequels. Phase threequels. Oh, well done. Yeah, thank you. I've been working on that all morning. That's the only thing I've prepared <laughs> for the podcast, uh, frankly. Uh, well, this is interesting news because uh, Phase 3, we don't know how many movies Phase 3 is going to nope. comprise and they still haven't announced release dates or, or anything. Nope. But we know Phase 3 is Ant-Man. Yep. We know it's likely to be Doctor Strange. Sure. Thor 3. Captain yep. America 3 yep. there will be an Avengers 3 in there undoubtedly probably so possibly that, putting, a put, cap on putting a cap on oh. phase 3 hey. yeah, I like that uh, so is there room for maybe one or two more on the phase 3 gravy train we know there's not going to be an Iron Man 4 for the time being Downey's signed only for Avengers 2 and 3 uh, so what's going to be next I stilt man <laughs> it's happening I, I mean maybe yeah, maybe there's room for a, a Captain Marvel or something you know did you not hear what I just said about Stiltman? I mean, he I love Stiltman. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, I'm just suggesting maybe a woman. Uh, but yeah, this is this is good news. And I think it also shows a heck of a lot of uh, promise for Captain America the Winter Soldier. It's, it suggests that they're very happy yes. with it if they're already talking about getting the same guys back. And yes. that's a heck of a vote of confidence. Stilt woman. Stilt lady. Stilt la- I, I just- <laughs> Ooh, no. Stilt arena. No. Damn it. All right, we'll work on that one. Philip. Hi, Chris. Can sex news friends ever be best news friends? Sex news is definitely not a thing. (laughs) Let's not make that a thing at all. (laughs) Um, This is a a sort of an oddity, this story, because it's about one of this year's Academy Award nominees being unnominated. (laughs) And it kind of grabbed my interest because... It, amidst all of the American hustle and the gravity and the 12 Years a Slave and the Meryl Streepiness of the awards this year, there's this one film that kind of crept in in the best song category, Alone Yet Not Alone, which is basically what they describe as a faith-based movie. It's a Christian movie, and it was distributed in the smallest number of cinemas, I think 10 in in Tennessee and Texas uh, last year. And the story basically is that it's best the best song for the ti- for the title song was nominated on the back of this man called um, Bruce Broughton, who used to be the head of the Academy's music arm. And he's had the song has been ejected because apparently his campaigning for a nomination crossed the line into, I guess, some kind of solicitation. What he did was because he's got a because he's got an in with all of his fellow members, he called them up and said, "Have a listen to my song. It's great." And that well, Lana Del Rey sure song said. from Gatsby is pants. So I'm not vote. even say, sure he said it was great. He just said, have a listen. But yeah, that no, was sorry. enough to break okay. the, the Academy's very strict rules. The, the Academy is very strict. You can do certain things. You yeah. can, for instance, send people an iPod loaded, preloaded with Les Miserables soundtracks. That's fine. You cannot kidnap people's children. You cannot send them <laughs> drugs or money. Um, 
and apparently you can't call them up and do this and um it's 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 an interesting one because so few movies have been ejected from from the academy awards previously i think there's there's a list of about maybe four or five in the whole history of the academy awards um and uh and this one is i guess not going to hurt the film that much really because this is an enormous amount of money can't buy publicity for it but at the same time i guess he is a disappointed man today and um He's also, it's worth mentioning, he's been nominated for an Academy Award before for Silverado, and you'll be pleased to hear uh, he worked on Tiny Tiny Tunes. Oh, hey, that's yeah. Brilliant. So it's not like he hasn't. So he's know. got stuff to to fall back on. Yeah, that's fine. That whole category is pretty much going to be let it go from Frozen anyway. So I'm yeah. not sure this was ever going to be uh, unseat the favourite, if you will. But uh, but yeah, it's always a, a shame when somebody, you know, loses out late Co- in the day like by, this. By uh, Robert Lopez. Yes, indeed. Of Book of Mormon. There you go. Bringing love, it back, Chris. Love it. Love should it. be the song about Dobie from Anchorman 2, shouldn't it? Should no. have been. Should Come have been. On. Should have been. Dobie could have had his moment on Honestly, stage. Don't <laughs> get me started, man. Yeah. Dobie had too much of a moment already. Okay, I've got some news. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Um, so on this very podcast, Liam Neeson said the following words. Uh, RE taken free. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> Let me keep that one up. All right. Right. I don't see it. I don't think it's going to happen. I really don't. I can't see any possible scenario where audiences wouldn't go, oh, come on, she's taken again. Now, he said that to you, Chris, right? He did. He okay. did. I was in the same room as him. Brace yourself. What? Taken uh, free is happening. Oh, come this has on. It's already been announced. No way. But it's really happening now because Forrest Whitaker is on board. <laughs> what, is the daughter? <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't get Maggie Grace back. Um, I, know no, how they got, Whit- I know how they got him on board. Right, a particular set of bills. <laughs> You've been working on that one, haven't you? No, that literally just popped it. Amazing. So Liam couldn't think of a scenario <laughs> in which Taken Free could be a possibility. <laughs> what has happened? Who to has changed his mind? Who has thought of the scenario? Who's responsible Presumably for this? Presumably someone <laughs> who's involved in the film. I don't know. I don't know who's writing this. To be honest, I think it's Luke Besson's involved somewhere with the story. Maybe they're just winging it. Maybe they don't have a scenario. Maybe just going to turn up on the first day. So who do we think is going to be taken in this one? Mike Lee. (laughs) The director. Yeah, he should direct it. No, Mike Lee will play himself in the film. Mike Lee will be taken. (laughs) (laughs) Brian Mills has to team up with Ken Loach to get him back. Okay. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) will Liam be taken? Or really, Brian Mills? He was taken in the last one. Right. Will he be retaken? (laughs) Do we need to have another film about a bloke rescuing a kidnapped girl? I mean... Yeah. doesn't have to be a girl. It could be yeah, but it always man. is. It wasn't okay, last time. Tell it you wasn't what. last time. It wasn't last time. It was. Taken Two, taken no, two is... No, I'm sorry. Much more of the film was spent rescuing kidnapped women than kidnapped men. Taken Two is, I will grant you, a steaming pile of horse manure. It's terrible. But he was taken for at least three to five minutes of that movie. <laughs> See, I barely remembered so, that that happened. He's locked yeah. up in some kind of shit. You know, remember he? when he's in the cupboard? Yeah, he's he's going, before he throws the grenades yeah. around. Before threw a grenade around Istanbul. All I can um, remember I mean, is he, I'm starts American. Ch- he starts chucking grenades around so that his daughter can hear where the yeah. and wife can hear where they are. <laughs> it's the worst idea in the world. How but is he not it, shot or like arrested? It works. And th- that, um, that scene is batshit crazy enough to make me interested in a third movie. I just hope that Olivia Megaton, who is uh, one of the worst action directors around, uh, the director of The Transporter 3, one star. Columbiana, two stars at best. And Taken 3, Taken 2, two stars at best. Uh, I hope he's not back on this one. And on the other hand, if you add it up, he has made a five-star film. So, oh. <laughs> who knows? He I'm might be brilliant. I'm not the guy. 
Um, <laughs> which oh, yeah. put upon racial minority will be the villains this time? Do we think <laughs> the um, Somali pirates seem to be quite in vogue at the moment? Yeah, but I think oh. they're, they're, they've had their day, haven't they? Really? Maybe mm. so. I don't know. Maybe he should. Uh, maybe he should look a bit closer to home. Mm. Wait um, a minute. Wait a minute. In the first film, Kim is kidnapped while going to a U2 concert. What if it's revealed that Bono and the Edge are the evil masterminds I, behind I, it all? I, yes. I came up with that Do idea it. two years ago. Yeah. I want it to be said. <laughs> okay. yep, yep, absolutely. <laughs> Bono should be revealed as the mastermind behind all of this. Definitely. I would be on board with the series if that happened. <laughs> I have another idea. What if the sets are taken? <laughs> Just go with it. Well, like D- Dogsville. They, yeah, the film. Yeah. And Liam Neeson has to find who's taken all the sets. I'm also on board with that. Let's make this happen. This is amazing. This is amazing. You've got me excited about Taken 3 in a way I did not expect when you started talking about that. That is it for the movie news, except, of course, today is Friday the 20... No, it's not. It's the 31st. 31st. Thank you. I have no idea what day it is. Friday the 31st of January, which means that we are uh, in New Empire Week. The end Way. of the month. Hey, look at that. Uh, Helen. Yes. Because I'm a little bit uh, close to this issue. You tell can't, me, tell you me can't about say it. anything about this I issue because be you wrote objective. practically all of it. Uh, this is our very exciting... Uh, X-Men Days of Future Past issue we made 25 character covers for this issue partly celebrating our own 25th anniversary year but also celebrating the incredible lineup of X-Men characters in this film Chris are you about to attempt to name all 25 yes. in, an, uh, in order uh, yeah. oh fuck okay, okay. okay. Right. three two one go uh, X-Men no Mutant D-Boy no. still man oh, damn it okay still woman still dead no uh, okay there's uh, 1973 Sentinel Havoc Toad. Yeah. William Stryker, played by Josh Hellman. Young William Stryker, not Brian Cox. For some sure. reason, they won't let us put Cox in the cover. Then we have... I don't know who we this have This is next. terrible. Come on. No, wait. Jennifer Lawrence, Mystique. There's Beast. There's uh, Wolverine, 1973. There's uh, Charles Xavier, 1973. There's Michael Fassbender, 1973 Magneto. There's Quicksilver as well. There's uh, P- uh, Bolivar Trask, played by Peter Dinklage. We gave Peter Dinklage a cover. It is the most awesome thing in the world. Brian Singer gets his own cover because he's a man at the heart of it all. Then we move into 2023 because it spans two different timelines. And so we have Future Wolverine with Adamantium Claws. That's explained inside the issue. We have uh, Charles Xavier, played by Patrick Stewart. McKellen uh, Magneto. We have Storm. Warpath, Blink, Bishop, Colossus, Sunspot, uh, the Tooth Fairy. Uh, we have Rogue. Rogue. Anna Paquin gets her own cover. Ellen Page, a Shadowcat. She gets a cover. Rogue is cut out of the movie, but she's in the, on the cover as well. Uh, who else do we have? We have Iceman. Bobby Drake is on the cover. And we have the future Sentinel. Uh, Did you say is, Colossus and Bishop? I said Colossus. I said Bishop. Warpath. Okay, I said Warpath. Yeah. I said the four new mutants in, so we're in good. 2023. Final facts. That's 25 final facts. Modem. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, Jim Belushi. They're all on the cover. And in the 34 pages that Chris wrote pretty much single-handed inside, uh, we have character breakdowns on all of them. We have yes. uh, stuff on all of them. We have uh, a, a sort of a behind-the-scenes look at why the Sentinels look the way that they do. We have the f- first word on X-Men Apocalypse with the full story behind Rogue. Mm-hmm. We have some gorgeous portraits of the people involved. And since they're all gorgeous, those are real seriously gorgeous portraits um, uh, we have much much more besides we have Need for Need for Speed is in this issue uh, yes with, in case X-Men isn't your bag in case, in you're case like, you know there is other stuff in there yeah, as well we look at mutant hater I was totally unaware of uh, Philippine exploitation cinema but there it is we have uh, The Musketeers the TV version which is thankfully washing away the horrible taste of the Paul W.S. Anderson movie of a couple of years ago with Tom Cruise we're on set with Tom Cruise of Edge of Tomorrow I mean, it's packed, quite frankly. It is packed. We have also a, a, an obituary for uh, 
the great late great, uh, Peter O'Toole we have uh, James Gunn talking about Guardians of the Galaxy we have an exclusive interview with Charlotte Buff which Is may or though? may not have actually happened but anyway do check it out and uh, yeah it's a it's a fantastic issue whether or not you are an evil mutie hater we also have a 50 word review of my super ex-girlfriend <laughs> alright you heard that right can you read it by this issue give us a give us a no, give us, no, give us four words give, give us, us four words um joke grown chickens bunny oh wow for the I'm other there. 46 you're gonna need to put some money down if that doesn't make you want to part with three pounds 99 and all good and evil news agents and of course we're also on the ipad where the cover does i believe something weird and mutant yeah it's fancy yeah, it's fancy so do check it out if you have an ipad you don't need 25 ipads just the one will do Hello and welcome to the science bit of the Empire podcast where Ali, the editor, that is me, by the way, tells you a bit more about our sponsor Squarespace and how to make use of their free trial and discount deal. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio or online store. I already do my own. I am enjoying it, but I just don't have the time, but it is good. Uh, For a free trial and 10% of your first purchase on a new account, go to squarespace.com forward slash empire and use the offer code empire1. But you want more details, and I understand that, so just for you, here are a few more why you should use Squarespace. For starters, Squarespace is very easy to use. It also has won lots of awards uh, from the likes of Forbes and with, you know, this being the internet here, the Webbies. It's also got uh, a customer service that's based in both New York, if you happen to be in America, and Dublin, if you happen to be in the Europe-type area, uh, as well as being user-friendly and doing all the tricky stuff for you, search engine optimization, hosting and making a site mobile, tablet, portable device-friendly, all that stuff. They've also got a huge vault of pre-prepared designs and style options to be getting on with to tweak to your taste. Sign up for a year and get a free domain name. Enjoy an on-hand support team working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all for $8 a month. And with this uh, uh, aforementioned uh, free trial uh, discount offer, you get 10% off your first purchase with the Empire Podcast's very own offer code EMPIRE1 via squarespace.com forward slash empire. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Okay, now we've appeased our corporate overlords. It's time to have a second interview. It's a second appearance in the pod for Peter Berg. Last time he came along to talk about Battleship, his big budget blockbuster that ended up being one of last year's biggest flops. But like Alan Partridge, needless to say, he's had the last laugh by bouncing back with the recent US number one hit, Lone Survivor, which charts an ill-fated military op in Afghanistan that saw a small group of Navy SEALs outgunned and outmanned by Taliban forces. Interestingly, if you go back to the last Berg appearance in the pod, like Liam Neeson, he talks animatedly about Lone Survivor. And then here we are, just a few months later. Uh, he came in recently and spoke to Helen and Phil. Enjoy. I think that if I look back on the, the films that I've done that have really, you know, I think worked well, things like Friday Night Lights, The Kingdom, and certainly Lone Survivor, these were films that I all felt a real clear connection to. You know, in most cases, I had written the scripts. In the case of Friday Night Lights and Lone Survivor, these were movies that were really kind of in my blood. A film like Lone Survivor, I just feel very deeply connected to. And I mean, you said in the past the timing actually kind of worked out better for this one in some ways, and that there had been developments in the hunt for Bin Laden since you first started working on this, and it actually, you know, maybe made it a different film than it otherwise would have been. I think, particularly in the U.S., now that for the most part we're leaving that part of the world and the war in Afghanistan is winding down, I think that there's more of a willingness, certainly in part of the American film audiences, 
to look at that war, particularly the way Lone Survivor does, which is not in a political way, but really is about the soldiers and about the bond between the men who are willing to go and serve. Mm. You get a real sense of the culture, I think, of the of the unit in those just the first what twenty minutes or something. It's it's not a long period, but it, yes. it does give you just a sense of how they live, I guess. At the core of Lone Survivor, it is certainly not a film about politics. It's not an expose on the war in Afghanistan. I deliberately tried to leave those politics out, and people can come to their own conclusions about that war. It really is a story about a brotherhood. And that bond, that love and that friendship and that brotherhood was something that I connected to. And that's what I wanted to make the focus of the story. You've been on the receiving end of a Navy SEAL razzing, haven't you, yourself, when you were in Iraq? How do you know that? You told me. <laughs> I did? I think so, yeah. Oh, you, you don't say that they... Was that um, sober? I think it was your birthday. I, uh, you I had a Navy me. SEAL birthday party and... Uh, sounds like and, an awful thing to experience. Uh, they don't make cake, do they? No, they, they don't. But see, they jumped me at about four in the morning and there were a few of them and I knew that I had to fight back otherwise I would just really be perceived as being soft and that would probably make the beating worse. So I punched the littlest one. This guy they called Tattoo. I punched him pretty good i think i got him in the side of the head but he figured out real quickly that oh you're punching me because i'm the littlest really so he went crazy and that made it worse i should have probably hit the biggest one and that would have helped me yeah but i ended up in a meat locker for for a while my hands and legs tied behind my back blindfolded and duct taped i was okay with everything till they were about to shave my head and that's when i really went crazy and told them i would tell the colonel if they kept doing that so that they finally backed off and what do you want for your birthday this year <laughs> i don't want to be near navy seals because of course you're a boxer aren't you i do and i, I do your enjoy boxing yes. your nickname is dirty pete is that right because you it used to be it used to what be i was now? actually just uh, the last time i was in london i was at uh, john rooney's boxing gym so if any of your uh, listeners are boxing fans i recommend john rooney's gym in london and he's a great boxing trainer but he doesn't call me dirty pete my earlier days when i was a little wilder i was maybe a bit dirtier now they call me the sniper because i'm very accurate Okay. This is a boxing Dirty Pete nickname, right? Yeah. Just, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not dirty in life. I'm... <laughs> the Because the, you had SEALs on set in New Mexico, didn't you? You yes. were quite close to Breaking Bad Country in Albuquerque. Well, I actually shooting... rented Mr. White's condo, and I slept every night doing Lone Survivor in Mr. White's bed because I wanted that creative spirit. And he had the most incredible Tempur-Pedic mattress that would wrap my whole body up like a mummy, and I couldn't move, and I was having the craziest dreams I've ever had in my life. But I spent the whole time filming Lone Survivor, sleeping in Mr. White's bed. I wanted that spirit and that creative inspiration. Wow. And from what you were saying, I mean, you tried to keep a little bit of, I guess, the seal spirit on set. And, you know, you were talking about Mark Wahlberg taking half a sandwich in his pocket up the yeah. mountainside. Like, there's no kind of, you know, craft services here. This is... Yeah, it a was a, a very no-frill shoot. We filmed it up at altitude on top of a ski mountain. So every morning we would have to get on the chairlift at about 4 a.m. because it would take the whole crew, a couple hundred people, which takes a long time. And literally Mark would get on the chairlift. Someone would give him a piece of equipment, a light or a stand to hold, stick a sandwich in his pocket and a bottle of water in his other pocket. And that was his lunch. It was great. The crew loved it. The cast loved it. We all chipped in and worked together. And Anytime I think anyone felt anything less than enthused, all you had to do was look up and there was Marcus Sattrell or five other Navy SEALs who were all good friends with the soldiers that had been killed in this operation. 
That was a constant reminder that maybe we should all work a little bit harder. Maybe we should not feel quite so sorry for ourselves. And I found that the men on the crew lost weight and grew beards and were very macho and virile. And uh, twice, wives of some of the crew members came up to me and they're like, man, I don't know what you're doing to my husband, but but we made love <laughs> last night. We had we He made love to me. He, he hasn't done that in five years. What's going on up here? That should be a new IMDb credit. Love Doctor. <laughs> Producer, writer, director, take two, love consultant. If your marriage is having trouble, go up to the top of a mountain and work for a couple of months. Yeah. And um, this scene, we can't really stress enough, the action sequences are remarkable. We have a great stunt coordinator, Kevin Scott, who won the Screen Actors Guild Award yesterday for Best Stunts in a Film for the Year, which I was very happy for him. And Marcus Sattrell describes two major falls because they were surrounded by the enemy and they were going to die if they stayed where they were. So they literally just jumped off of two cliffs. And and so we spent a lot of time figuring out how we were going to do these stunts. We had about 80 different falls that we knew we had to film. And I gave a big talk to all the stuntmen before about, you know, if we're asking you to do something that you think is too dangerous and just say no, it's okay, we'll figure out another way around it. And the first of 80, the stuntman was up on top of a 20-foot drop and... Well, I was trying to figure out what he was going to do with these cameras below, and I just couldn't figure out how he was going to throw himself off of this. And I went up, I said, uh, hey, hey, what's going on? What, what's the plan here? He looked at me and said, well, I'm going to run off the cliff. I'm going to jump. I'm going to hit that tree down there. I'm going to bounce <laughs> off the tree. And then there's a rock over. I'm going to hit the rock. I'm going to bounce out of the shot. And I go, are you sure? He goes, yeah. And I felt he didn't have any pads on. I said, don't you want some pads for your stomach or what? He said, no, I need the flexibility. I said, okay. We start rolling. This is the first of 80. Five cameras rolling. I call action. He runs. He jumps. He hits the tree real hard. And he breaks all the ribs on his left side and punctures his lung. That was the first one. We had to get the helicopter to get him off the mountain. So... I realized that because Marcus Sattrell was on the set, because these Navy SEALs were on the set, these stuntmen all had so much testosterone going. You know, they wanted to do it right for these guys. So my job as a director became for the next month telling people to slow down and just being like, okay, we're not doing that. Some of my actors, Ben Foster, who's just hardcore, I forbid all the actors from doing it. They all wanted to get it right for Marcus. Yeah. There were stories of Ben Foster getting pretty method on the film. Yeah, eating, eat, dirt. eating dirt. Yeah, one time we were doing a scene where they'd just fallen off a cliff and Ben was trying to wake up and we were setting the cameras and uh, Mark Wahlberg came up to me and he said, Pete, Ben's eating dirt. And I looked and Ben Foster was taking handfuls of just dirty, dry, brown dirt and swallowing it. And I kind of walked up to him. I said, Ben, what are you doing? And he's like, nothing. I said, Ben, I saw you eating dirt. He said, don't worry about it. Let's go. Let's roll. Let's just do it. And uh, we did it. Ben ate dirt. <laughs> did he explain why he was eating dirt? Just, just to I be one ask. with the mountain. I okay. didn't ask. <laughs> um, I mean, just in terms of this film, and, and about the only real criticism that's been made is people questioning the, the veracity, not so much of the, of the film, actually, but the book. You, you've obviously done a lot of research on it. So what was your take on all of that? I think that Marcus got it very close to right. You know, I've read the after-action reports, which are reports that the military does. I was able to study the autopsy reports of Danny Dietz, Mike Murphy, and Matt Axelson. There's video online if you go to Live Leaks, which is a pretty chilling website and very hardcore footage. I think the biggest issue in terms of accuracy was how many Taliban. You know, the numbers have ranged between 200 and 
15. I don't ever say exactly how many there were, but I believe that Marcus got it very close to right in his book. It's very difficult to, I guess, in the heat of battle to actually analyze numbers, sure. do a head count and stuff. But yeah, and, Mar- and Marcus will tell you everywhere they went, there were just an uns- insurmountable amount of Taliban. And people have asked, you know, why is it that the Taliban die with one gunshot in this film and Americans take seven or eight? Well, the reality is the Americans were using M4 and Mark 10 sniper rifles with scopes, which are very, very accurate weapons. The Taliban use AKs, which they fire from their hips, which are very uh, not accurate weapons. And if you talk to British Special Ops, Four well-trained Navy SEALs with scopes and sniper rifles will have that kind of kill ratio against Taliban soldiers with AKs. They're just much more accurate weapons. And and one other controversy that sort of latched itself to the film, which is really not something that you had any control over, is the the executive producers, these two guys that have a backstory, should we say. (laughs) It's a... I mean, legally, I know there's not probably things you can talk about with this, but it's part of this financing model, which is quite unusual, isn't it, where you've got... A yeah. number of guys that put in a million dollars to help get the film made. Yes, I mean, in in uh, as a filmmaker, this is a great way to make a film because you do, you're free from studio interference. You're given quite a bit of autonomy, and that's a good thing. The bad thing can be that you've got up to thirty different producers. You know, if someone writes a check for a million bucks, they're a producer. We evidently had a couple of producers who have a fairly sketchy past. I don't recall ever meeting these gentlemen. From what I understand, that was a long time ago, and uh, I'm willing to forgive and forget. These guys were accused of some drug trafficking about 10 or 15 years ago, maybe even worse. I heard murder for hire. I don't, I mean, I can't imagine that if they were guilty of this, they'd still be walking around in Hollywood. I think whatever happened, happened long ago. And, and I, all I can tell you is that the money cleared and there were no drugs on the set of a, a Lone Survivor. Apart from all the testosterone, naturally. Yes, natural <laughs> testosterone, and that's it. Um, what's, what's next for you? Is it going to be cocaine cowboys? Do you know? It could be. Right now I'm doing a TV series for HBO with Damon Lindelof called The Leftovers, which is really good. We did the pilot and we're filming 10 of those in New York uh, right when I get back. We have a a very good script that uh, Bill Monaghan wrote, who's just a wonderful writer for Cocaine Cowboys. Mark and I want to do that, Mark Wahlberg, and if we can figure out a way of making that happen, I think there's a good shot. And you mentioned possibly unwisely earlier last year a, a possible sequel to The Rundown or Welcome to the Jungle as we know it here. Is that still a possibility? Yeah, we, we're um, having a script written for that also now. So I, I get more people asking me to do that. <laughs> and I was with Dwayne Johnson last for the last two weeks shooting something with him and he wants to do it. So yeah, it could happen. It's one of those ones that, I mean, you made it a long time ago and it's developed a, f- a following yeah. since then and now people are like wow you're going to do another one well yeah <laughs> the- I mean I was talking to Dwayne about it you know that movie did pretty well but you know that was back in the early days when Dwayne was still The Rock and he was a wrestler and there was a certain audience that just didn't really believe that he could be in a good film and Rundown's a pretty good film so people have found it much later and you were saying you watched um, Pain and Gain on the flight over I did I thought he was great in Pain he's and Gain he's so good in that film. he's <laughs> phenomenal <laughs> I thought it was a really good movie. There's a little story that I read. I don't know if this is true. Christopher Walken in The Rundown. He had a line he had to deliver where he describes this group of slightly gormous villagers as Oompa Loompa morons. But he didn't know what an Oompa Loompa was. Well, right. So I wrote this line where he called these villagers, you you little Oompa Loompa morons. And he didn't want to say the word. So he kept calling them morons. And I kept going back to him saying, Chris, you got to call them Oompa Loompa morons. And he'd say, okay, okay. And then he wouldn't call them Oompa Loompa. And finally, he's like called me over he's like I don't understand what this means Oompa Loompa I'm like well 
You don't know what an Oompa Loompa is? You all know what Oompa Loompas are, right? He had never seen Willy Wonka, and he didn't know what Oompa Loompas were. So I, I talked him through Willy Wonka, the Chocolate Factory, and talked him through Oompa Loompas. Then he got it, and he loved it, and he killed the lion. Oh, I see. I think the story was that he, you got him a copy of the DVD and sent him home to watch it. so he could. <laughs> no, I just told him. Well, <laughs> yeah. we might have sent him afterwards a copy. I think we did send him after that day. Yeah. Because I, I, I needed him to say it right then. We weren't going to come back. But I did find, and, I, and it was one of those crazy, like, you know, we have these odd experiences in our business, and there I, we had to stop shooting, and I had to walk, take Chris aside to the woods, and basically explain to him, pitch him the movie while he walked in the chocolate factory, and make him understand who the Oompa Loompas were, yeah. So, so you need to get him back for the sequel and have, have more. Well, he died pretty bad, so I'm not yeah, sure. Not <laughs> I've also just got to wrap up. We are huge fans of Friday Night Lights Thank in the you. Empire office. Um, there was talk of a film, and then, I mean, I know Carl Chandler was saying it's probably not likely now. Is, is, has the time got passed? I think? think so. I mean, it really did end on a pretty good note. And as, mu- as much as we all would love to, whenever there's talk about going back, we just want to go back. I mean, we had fun. We were all great friends. That was a very magical time in our lives. You know, these actors were all just starting out, the young ones. And Kyle and Connie were just really, you know, on, uh, they've done so well since then. And I think it's an, it's very natural as much as we have a longing to to make the show again, what we really have a longing for is to go back to that time. We were all living in Austin, Texas, and and just having an incredibly magical and special time, and everybody was really happy, and a bunch of young people were all sleeping with each other, and all <laughs> kinds of things were going on. And, you know, everybody yearns to go back, but as we all know, because we're adults, you oftentimes just can't go back. Yeah. So I think probably won't, will not happen. But it's good. You've got. I mean, you've got a bit of a kind of relationship now with uh, Taylor Kitsch. You've worked with him a couple of times I d- on I the do. big screen. And Jesse Plemons seems to be coming up oh as well. Oh my god! I, I think he's going to be in Star Wars. I'm. I'm hearing. I don't know if that's true, but that's what the rumor is. I mean, I'm so happy. I'm. I'm happy for all. Uh, all. All of these actors, and and really, we are a family. I mean, I work a lot with Taylor, but I would work with with Kyle in a second, or or Jesse, or, or certainly Connie, any of them, and. Um, it was a special time. Let's start with Lone Survivor as we run our eyes and ears and, you know, speaky bits over the week's new releases. Uh, Helen. Yes. Uh, so this is the story of four Navy SEALs uh, played by uh, P- uh, Mark Wahlberg, Emil Hirsch, Taylor Kitsch and Ben Foster, uh, who are sent on a mission into Taliban-controlled Afghanistan uh, off their base. They're basically meant to recon a little village and see if this bad guy is there so that then the rest of the forces can kind of come in and catch this dude. Um, however, everything that could go wrong basically does go wrong. Uh, some some sort of farmers stumble across their location. They have the choice of, do we, do we kill these people? Do we tie them up and risk them dying of exposure? Do we let them go and risk ourselves being discovered? What do we do? Um, and they can't get into radio contact with their superiors and basically things go badly wrong and they end up in a firefight basically being chased over mountainsides by superior numbers of uh, of Taliban troops. So, I mean, the, from an action point of view, it's, it's brilliantly put together. There's, there's an incredible firefight and a, and a real sense of kind of danger and you know, of, of, of very, very, very well-trained and, and heroic men, you know, facing off against terrible odds. Um, I think the politics of the film are, I think, for Amer- for non-American audiences, a little bit more problematic um, because it's not the most nuanced and sort of... 
balanced kind of a film. Yeah, um, and if Dan Gillen were here, he'd be on a soapbox mm. right now. He would, absolutely. And I think there are attempts, on in, in Peter Berg's defence, I think there are very much attempts to to humanise the Afghanis, if not the Taliban. You know, there is a there is a role for, for sympathetic locals in the film, shall we say. Um, but it's it's not exactly... Uh, you know, a, a film that's rich in shades of grey. It's it's very black and white. I think. Yeah, this is this movie is interesting. I thought the first hour was absolutely terrific, uh, and then it fades away quite badly in the particularly in the last twenty minutes. When if you read up what actually happened to Marcus Luttrell and the Navy Seals, uh, certain liberties are taken, and I can see why they're taken sure. from a from a storytelling point of view, from a from a three act structure point of view. Um, the the real operation Marcus Luttrell was was held in an Afghan village for five days and and his uh, eventual escape and handover, not not escape, but his handover to uh, his own troops was kind of uneventful really, so um, but Peter Berg and I guess his you know, the studio wanted something a little bit more explosive and that doesn't really work for me the last 20 minutes, but the first mm. hour of this film I thought was terrific because it's, it's incredibly tense because you know from the title that bad things are going to happen to these guys. And I thought he, uh, I thought Peter Berg really, really um, was masterful in the build-up of tension, the build-up of the feeling of doom, impending uh, doom for these and guys. And it has got some of the best stunts you'll see yeah. on the big screen That's for true. a long yeah. time. I was reading last night, uh, there's a great article on Vanity Fair about the best stunts the last 12 months, and they did this, uh, these amazing stunts where they were plummeting down the side of a mountain, for real. Yeah. yeah. They were just using moss and grass to break their fall, but they yeah. were effectively plummeting, bouncing off rocks and stuff. It's yeah. incredible. In the operation, they were the, basically the Navy SEALs were were put into a, a jump off. You have to jump off a cliff, or we're going to die. Yeah, it's as simple as that. that. Was, so that, that happens. Choice, yeah. That happens twice in the movie, and the stunts are absolutely are just eye popping. Uh, and the, the firefights are amazing in this film. It's a really, really good action movie and a really, really good war movie, regardless of where you stand politically. I think mm. uh, for about eighty minutes, and then it just tails away. I think it's a, it's it's something of a return to form for Peter Berg after the catastrophe that was Battleship. Um, yeah. And this was the film that he wanted to make, and I think there was a bit of horse trading, wasn't there, with Universal about which one he'd get to make first. Yeah. And he did one for them and one for him. And this is very much, you can feel, what the one for him. It's his passion project. And actually, I think, you know, that that's kind of... Uh Paid off. This has paid off much better for them than the one they got yeah, him to weirdly, do as payment. You yeah, know? it's very strange. If they just made this film, they would have been, you know, Laughing. looking a lot healthier. Yeah. Um, it's certainly nowhere near as good as his best Friday Night Lights. I don't think, um, and it doesn't maybe have the political nuance of the Kingdom. It's kind of turned into. Do you remember that old John Wayne Vietnam film, The Green Berets? Yeah the end where they kind of without giving away too much of the ending it sort of turned into the very like it was an attempt to add some complexity to it and to add some balance but it just felt very tagged on yeah it did a bit um, but the action sequences are very very well handled and yeah. I, I would also say that the the kind of the camaraderie between the men is is very well developed and Taylor Kitch in particular I think gets a, gets a really good role and reminds us why he landed all those blockbuster leads last year which then didn't really pan out but it, it's kind of good to be reminded you know for those of us who have loved him in Friday Night Lights and things like that, that he is actually capable of great things. Interesting. Maybe we should have mentioned his name right at the very, very beginning in that sort of rom-com plum slot. Yeah, you Who know knows? what? He could have it in him. Who knows? Uh, all right. That's three stars for Lone Survivor, which, as we always say, is a recommendation. I think it's, uh, you know, like I say, 80 minutes, great. Uh, last 20 minutes, not so much. Uh, let's move on now to the Armstrong lie. Well, this is a uh, another Alex Gibney joint, and he's been Pretty, pretty prolific lately because obviously he had WikiLeaks, We Steal Secrets last year, looking at Julian Assange. He's looked at Elliot Spitzer, the New York uh, congressman, uh, New York Attorney senator, General or something. New York Attorney General, some form of New York politician. 
Um, Elliot Spitzer and Enron, he's fascinated by powerful men and they didn't come much more kind of magnetic and powerful than Lance Armstrong. Uh, this film has an interesting origin, I think you referred to it earlier, in that it was originally intended to be, uh, it was a Frank Marshall and uh, Matt Tolmack. Matt Tolmack, the producer of Spider-Man. Frank Marshall, of course. Former head of Sony Pictures as well. And he former head of Sony Pictures, a massive cycling fan, mm. uh, along with Frank Marshall. Both of them, Frank Marshall especially, good friends with Lance Armstrong. This was originally going to be a feature film starring Matt Damon. Frank Marshall had produced the Bourne movies. Matt Damon was kind of on board to play Lance Armstrong in a feature film. And it's kind of evolved over the years into what it is now, which is basically a critique, a pretty fierce critique of Lance Armstrong as this hero fallen low, basically. A big, you know, the lie kind of followed on, followed on from his interview with Oprah where um, Gibney got to sit down with him again, having followed him around for his comeback tour in the 2009 Tour de France, and say, what up with all of this nonsense? And uh, so it's sort of half of one thing and half of another. It's half of it's a comeback documentary and half of a real kind of um, hard-hitting look at... And it's a really what emerges is a really interesting portrayal of, of Armstrong as this kind of super alpha character. He's like halfway between, the midway point between like Captain America... And uh, and Thanos almost. He's got like <laughs> these two extremes of personality, and um, and I think Gimli does a pretty good job of of revealing you know the inner Lance Armstrong as much as you ever can. But this is a man who's kind of we talked about in the interview. He's got a, he's got a sort of pathological ability to lie to himself, and so you're never really going to get perhaps right into the heart of the matter with him. Um, but I was fascinated by. It. I'm not particularly a Tour de France or cycling fan, but I found the whole thing really interesting. It is It is interesting. I think it's the first kind of time that, that Gibney's put so much of himself on screen in a documentary, obviously because of his connection with that sort of earlier attempt at telling a positive story about Armstrong. He's, he's kind of maybe not had the choice. He had to kind of put himself in it uh, partly as a mea culpa. But I do think it's less focused and less kind of tight storytelling than some of his other films. I mean, something like Taxi to the Dark Side or Enron, those have really clear and kind of fiercely intellectual, mm. you know, dissections of a very complicated subject. This, you never quite feel, poss- possibly just because of the character of Armstrong himself, you never quite feel like you're getting under his skin. Yeah, he's elusive. I'd agree with that, actually. I think I think that's partly a reflection of the fact that it got a, the story changed yeah. halfway through and by def- by sort of default, he lost a little bit of the focus. It became something else. And it's trying to, it's two movies in one, basically. And I don't think it's ever quite 100% resolved as to which one it is predominantly. So we gave it three stars. Three stars. Okay, three stars for the Armstrong line. Two films opened this Wednesday, already out. You may already have seen them, but just in case, we're going to talk about them anyway. Let's start with Out of the Furnace, uh, Scott Cooper's bleak drama starring Christian Bale, Casey Affleck, Woody Harrelson. Really good cast, is actually. Yeah. Helen, what do you think of this one? This is an interesting film because I think it really suffers from uh, what was announced when the film was announced. When the film was announced, the story was laid out. We all reported on it. But honestly, that gives away really third act events. And I, for one, spent, you know, the first two thirds of the film just waiting for this stuff to get going. And I think it really suffers from that. I think it's one of those ones where the less you know about what's coming later on, the the more you will enjoy it. Uh, But the setup is that uh, Christian Bale plays uh, a kind of blue-collar worker, uh, Russell Bl- Bays is his name. Slightly unlikely. It's one of those names you only get in movies. Um, and he's the kind of, he's the good kid. He's the guy who's been kind of just working hard, keeping his head down. He's in love with Zoe Saldana's uh, nursery school teacher, 
life is good. Um, his brother, Rodney, who's played by Casey Affleck, is, is a bit more troubled. Uh, he was in the army. He's back from Iraq. Uh, he's been stop-lost a couple of times and, and brought back into the army. Um, and is a, at a little bit of a, lo- a, a loose end when he is home. He doesn't really quite know what to do with himself. And he seems, you know, a little bit more uh, prone to making bad decisions. Mm. Um Disaster strikes fairly early on when uh, Russell's sent away to prison after uh, a driving uh, accident, um, and and when he emerges, he finds that you know everything has kind of gone a little bit to pot in his absence. So it's kind of him trying to, I guess, rebuild and 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 find a new equilibrium afterwards. Woody hey. Harrelson, yeah. There deliberate you go. was that deliberate? It Tell wasn't, that was deliberate. but I, let, let's say it was. That's good. Okay, you're treading on my dreams. <laughs> yeah. And then Woody Harrelson is a very, very sinister kind of um, drug dealer redneck from up in the hills, um, who is is quite a sinister kind of force, and, and and you know is is maybe the the threat that awaits anyone who kind of steps off the beaten path. Let's okay. say. Okay, this is from Scott Cooper, whose last yeah. movie was Crazy Heart. Yeah, which uh, earned Jeff Bridges. An Oscar, yes. An Oscar. So, promising, or does he does he follow fulfil the promise of Crazy Heart? Or this movie seems to me to yeah. be a little bit deliberately uh, grubby and grimy. It's Christian Bale in greasy long hair and goatee boat. <laughs> that usually to me is a warning sign. Yeah, that's not unfair. I think it yeah. is. It is a bit. It is very much kind of. It is a sort of a rusty blue collar kind of a story. You know, the the plant where they've worked for years and that this this town is clearly built around is is you know letting people go. People are on the edge. There there is that kind of rust belt America kind of. It's a Springsteen song. Mate. It is a Springsteen yeah. song in many ways. Um, and the sense of place is great, and I think the performances are great, as you'd expect from this cast. Uh, for me, the story wasn't terribly compelling, possibly because I knew those spoilers were coming, which, you know, if spoilers don't usually spoil things for me, I think I've got a, a cer- certain degree <laughs> of immunity. But in this case, I thought that was the premise of the film. So I was kind of waiting okay. for it to get going. One of those cases where the, the performances are stronger than the story they support. Yes. Don't expect musical numbers and <laughs> happy dancing flowers at the end, basically. I would really like to see Christian Bale do a full on comedy. He might tell you that he has. He might. I'm not sure he's right. Anyway, this one got three stars from us. Okay. Leonard's I Frankenstein's Stuart documentary about the struggle of Frankenstein's monsters to survive in the modern day while becoming embroiled in an ancient war between gargoyles and demons with the fate of mankind at stake. Now, for a documentarian, Stuart Beattie got unparalleled access to Frankenstein's monster for this movie. <laughs> I, I believe. I, I didn't I'm, even know yeah. that that was... Yeah, no, that's... Um, no, no, I read that somewhere. Okay. I may have written it down, to be fair. Um, yeah, this is the uh, long-awaited... Mm. I, Frankenstein, which is um, from the makers of Underworld, which should tell you everything you need to know. Now, we should be clear about this. Helen and I have not seen this movie. No, it didn't screen for critics. It did not. It did not screen for critics. And as shown by its story, shown at the US box office over the weekend, it barely screened for the public. So, Kim Newman has seen it. Yes. What does he say? Let me just give you one line of his review. Okay. If you stitched together the worst parts of Van Helsing, Underworld and Legion and then tried to shock them to life with the electric eels from Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein, you might get something as twaddlesome as this franchise wannabe gothic 3D action film. That's just one sentence. That's only one sentence. There may even be another two or three in there. Oh, at least. Uh, Yeah, so what what does Lord Kimothy of Newman give it? Uh, Five parts bad to one part camp nonsense, one star. 
one star. That I don't know. He sold me. <laughs> he sold me with that. That sounds amazing. That sounds like it could be a, a as we say in the business here, a five star, one star movie. This maybe it be, will be. Maybe we should have a group outing. I think we should have a group outing uh, after the podcast. So maybe you know, if you see us in the street, come up to us and maybe we'll tell you what I Frankenstein is like. Just just look at our faces, ashen faces, and then just walk away. Uh, one star for I Frankenstein, which in a really weird, perverse kind of way, is a recommendation. Um, <laughs> all right. Also out this week is that awkward moment which unites the stellar comic talents of Miles Teller, Zac Efron, your mate, Zac Efron, yep. from earlier in the podcast. you remember yep, that bit? I remember that. It's a and, nice uh, throwback. <laughs> yeah, it's good, wasn't it? And uh, Michael B. Jordan, the brilliant Michael B. Jordan. Uh, so That got three stars. Three stars. Yeah. Do we know what it's about? It's, uh, it's a rom-com, and basically Michael B. Jordan gets dumped by his girlfriend, and in a show of solidarity, his two best mates pledge to stay single as well until you know he kind of recovers from his heartbreak. And then Zac Efron meets Imogen Poots and is all like, oh, I think I might love you. Dilemma. I can absolutely empathise with that man in, in, that, in that case. Uh, but yeah, that awkward moment when you come to review that awkward moment and then you realise you haven't seen I haven't, that awkward no. moment. But and, we get but, it three stars, so I do plan to see it because that is a recommendation. That is a recommendation. So I know where you'll be in the cinema this week. You'll be watching all the three-star films and then a little bit of I Frankenstein in the end as well. You know it. Um, okay, and that is it for the Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Matthew McConaughey. Former rom-com plum turned uh, Oscar-nominated awesomeness. Uh, he's a star of Dallas Buyers Club and also Spike Jones, former music video plum, now the director of... <laughs> no? Okay. I don't know about these plums. <laughs> it's not my phrase, to be fair. Uh, Spike Jones, the brilliant director of the equally brilliant Her, he'll be in as well. Uh, and there might might be someone from Robocop. Is this... This hasn't been confirmed yet. This hasn't been confirmed yet? Mm. Maybe. There might be some people from Robocop. Who knows? Until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Nick. See ya. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to find out if sex friends ever really truly can be best friends. See you next week. Bye.